So church family, after a little pause to enjoy Herky Creek last Sunday, are you ready to return with me to our verse-by-verse adventure into the epistle of 1 John? Well then, let's do that. If you'll take your Bible and turn with me almost to the very end of your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to land this morning. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back just in case that's uh, what you might require this morning as well. A note page from your bulletin is waiting for you, and if you'll grab that, that'll be of some help along the way. Now, as a way of getting us back into the flow of things, I'm going to invite you to find verse 15 of chapter 2. And if you were with us two mornings ago, these words will not be unfamiliar as they were our focus. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We'll stop right there. And may the Holy Spirit, who wrote these words straight from the heart of God, enable us to hear and apply exactly what he would intend for them to, for God's glory. And for our good. And we say amen and amen. Now if you are a regular here at IBC, you know that it is a virtual certainty that I would not be thinking that we will cover this entire passage this morning. Right? I mean, that's just not going to happen. But I did want to read this whole section in hopes that you would pick up on a major theme that is running through these verses especially since I made an effort to emphasize one word in particular as I read. And what word was that? 
Yes, it was the word abide. That word occurs no less than seven times in these verses, and it's alluded to in other ways a few times more. Abide, meaning to remain, to hold fast, to hang in, to stay put, to reside, endure, continue on, persevere to the end. Abide. John says, Abide in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Hold fast to the gospel of Jesus. Persevere in this, the true faith, all the way to the finish line. And you can be sure you are a real Christian. For the beloved apostle and pastor John, abiding in Jesus, remaining in and persevering with Jesus is going to become yet another proof of what it means to be a real Christian. There was in John's day, as there is in our own day, tremendous confusion about what it means to be a real, authentic, genuine, heaven-bound sinner now saved. What do real Christians believe? How do they live? How do they behave? Who do they love, and what does that love look like? The Holy Spirit writes this letter through John precisely to answer these kinds of questions. How can you tell the real from the fake, the true Christian from the phony wannabe? This is what First John is all about. In fact, in, John will say in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John is really a letter about assurance. Am I real? Are those in my circle real? Some of the proofs of real that John presents to us aren't always what we might expect. And perhaps for some of us, that may be the case today. Over the course of my years as a pastor, one area that I have observed not only curiosity in, but also confusion in, has to do with matters of salvation assurance, matters of the Christian's security in Jesus. Sometimes at a church gathering, and perhaps most often when new folks find IBC, they want to know where we stand on this issue of security in Jesus. Now the question is usually framed somewhat like this. What do you believe about eternal security? Or do you believe a person can lose their salvation? You have been asked this question, or perhaps you've asked it yourself. Maybe you're even asking it right now. It's not merely a debated doctrine. It has very personal implications for people who we know and care about. I recently had a conversation with an older mom who was seeking to find consolation in the knowledge that her now adult son in his 40s had prayed the sinner's prayer as a small child. But from his teen years on, he has wanted nothing to do with Jesus or Christianity or Christians. He is living totally immersed in the world, loving the world, chasing the world. Her heart breaks for him. She longs to find salvation assurance for her son, but it eludes her because her son's life does not line up in any way with the claims of Jesus. The Holy Spirit through John's pen in verses 18 and 19 may provide some insight for this mom 
and for us as well, as he speaks to the issue of perseverance as a proof of real. Verses 18 and 19, one more time, read like this. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, these two verses, as you could tell from looking at your Bible page, begin a larger section that runs down through verse 27. And in this larger section, John will take up what real Christians believe about Jesus. And Lord willing, we'll get a chance to take that up next time. However, there is within verse 19 this matter of continuing on or persevering that I feel we would be poorer for if we pass over it. And to get to verse 19, we have to understand verse 18 and what has just happened within many of the churches that John is caring for as pastor. If you've been with us from the beginning of our journey into 1 John, you know that the aged apostle is the pastor of the church at Ephesus in the late 1st century, and he also serves as kind of a pastor at large for several other churches in this region of Asia Minor. A new, heretical, extremely dangerous, false teaching explodes on the scene. It's called Gnosticism. It denied that Jesus was God's sinless son, that faith in him alone is essential to salvation. It said that you could live any kind of lifestyle that you wanted because sin was really no big deal. And you could treat those who didn't embrace the Gnostic way with scorn and with condemnation. Cleverly packaged and skillfully presented by charismatic leaders, these false this false teaching started to gain traction within the churches and no small number of professing Jesus followers were being drawn away. John fiercely defended these congregations, yet despite his efforts, schisms emerged, lines were drawn, sides were taken, all the painful things that happen when this kind of thing goes down were happening in the churches that John was caring for. Eventually these False teachers and their followers left the church. And this was extremely painful, especially for John. Can you imagine how much that would have hurt if that were to happen here? Can you imagine? I mean, I don't even want to think about such a thing. These were people who had once fellowshiped together and sang and prayed and served side by side and shared meals together and, and really done life together like we do. And now there was a group of them were gone. And the exit of these friends and neighbors was a truly defining act. Because in the early church, you see, you didn't have 20 churches in town and various denominations like we do today. The church was thrilled if there was just one Jesus-following congregation in each city. And so to leave the church was to leave the only expression of Christianity that you had in that city. And it's not like today where if you don't like that they removed the organ and they put in drums or, 
or the new carpet isn't your color or, or it's too crowded or or maybe it's too small to hide or whatever. I mean, you could just go down the street. But it wasn't like that in the first century, late first century. To leave your church meant that you were leaving Jesus. You were rejecting the claims of the Christian faith. So what was it that was behind this extremely painful exodus from Jesus' church? What was really behind this grievous mess that split the church, leaving the heart, heart, the, the, leaving heartache and confusion and wounded congregations? What was that? Well, verse 18 tells us. And John starts out very kindly with his favorite expression when talking to his Christian friends. He, he says, children. But then that fatherly tone disappears and John forgets any attempt at what today we would call political correctness and social nicety. And he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. John, in this moment, is calling people Antichrists. It is the last hour. John wants these believers and us to realize that we're living in important and precarious times. He calls it the last hour. We may think, wow, if it's the last hour and he wrote this 2,000 years ago, that is a mighty long hour. Clearly, he's not referring to a chronological set-your-clock-by-it kind of last hour. But in terms of redemptive history and the expansive, glorious salvation of sinner's story that God is writing, it is the last hour. John's phrase literally reads, last hour it is. He purposely flips the word order in the original text in order to make it an emphatic expression. Brothers, sisters in Jesus, it's the last hour! Exclamation point. The last hour also referred to by other New Testament writers as the last days, began at Bethlehem when Jesus broke into our world and put on flesh and bone and came to die for us, and then ascended back into heaven, where he presently sits at the Father's right hand. The last hour ends when he comes again, when he returns as he promised, calls his church to himself, and then unleashes the devastating end times judgments upon the unbelieving world that are laid out in terrifying detail in the book of Revelation. From the Bible's perspective, everything in the human story, from creation onwards, keys off of Jesus. He is the center. Having come, having died, having risen from the dead, with the offer of life eternal through faith in him, with that offer on the table, John is saying, the end of all things as we know them could happen at any moment. The next great Jesus event is going to be his second coming. And so scripture, and John specifically, can rightly call these the last days or the last hour, even though God has graciously extended redemption opportunity to sinners for 2,000 years. Because, quite literally, today could be the last day. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, those are still possible today. But that could change in the twinkle of an eye, literally. 
We are living in the last hour. The last redemptive hour, as it were. John says unequivocally, twice in verse 18, that it is, present tense, the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. What was behind this terribly damaging split in the churches that John was pastoring? Well, he answers that question without apology. There were antichrists and an antichrist spirit at work in the world in these last days. And this last hour, even as God offers salvation to sinners, antichrists are at work. Anti, Greek for against or in place of. Christos, Christ Jesus, against Jesus. There was an against Jesus spirit at work in the midst of these Christian congregations. And that is what John is saying. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Well, he's already here as well. We've all heard that Antichrist is coming, right? I mean, if you've been a Jesus follower for even a short time, you probably know something about the coming Antichrist. Scripture speaks prophetically in many different places, both Old and New Testament, about a real person, an individual who comes onto the world stage in the future, and he will be the embodiment of evil and opposition to God near the very end of God's redemptive timetable. John calls him Antichrist. And here is the very first time that that name appears in Scripture. The Apostle Paul called him the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, here's what Paul said. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we want you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's a description of the Antichrist who is coming in the future. This will be the greatest human enemy of God of all time. A man of enormous leadership skill, power, charisma, ambition, and pride. Energized by Satan, he will lead the world and the world will gladly follow him. He hates God. He hates Jesus. And he hates all who give allegiance to Jesus. Now we won't go into any more detail about the Antichrist right now because that's not John's intent here. But what's important for us to understand is this moment that we're talking about, the term Antichrist, it just isn't simply limited to that one powerful, God-hating future individual. In this moment, Antichrist also includes anyone, any person who opposes Jesus in any age and desires to to supplant or replace him or falsely misrepresent Jesus. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, 
So now many antichrists have come. And so John is obviously thinking about these Gnostic leaders with their distorted and divisive, doctrinally errant presentation of Jesus Christ. The, anti, the, 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 the Gnostic leaders said, once you, you get enlightened to the real truth, the secret truth that we possess, well then sin is a non-issue and Jesus is an unnecessary Savior. You really don't need him. Let us show you the way, the higher way to God. John wants the Christians who remain true to Jesus to realize that the spirit of Antichrist has been in their midst. Been in their midst for some time doing an evil work. Indeed, there are many Antichrists, John says. Many who share the spirit of that coming future Jesus-hating leader. Anyone who denies or opposes Jesus is an antichrist. That's really what John says. The Apostle Paul lays out this antichrist spirit rather clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, which I've included there on your note page. He writes these words, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. This is the Antichrist spirit that John is talking about here in 1 John. John could not have agreed more with what Paul is saying. Over in chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 John, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And this spirit, John says, was in our midst, disguised for a time, but it was there, deadly, divisive, but it's not there anymore. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Brothers and sisters, there is not a single person in this room who is not touched by this verse in one way or another. We could easily pass over it as somewhat informational if we're just reading along, but John is making a hugely critical doctrinal statement here. If you flip your note page over, without coming right out and saying it, John is implying that it was actually very helpful that the false teachers and their disciples had left the church. Because that then revealed something plainly. It showed that back before the whole church split, there were some whom they thought were genuine, authentic, sold-out followers of the Lord Jesus in their church. They were all assuming that these persons were with them. But in fact, they were not actually with them. They were against them. They were against Jesus and against them. 
John's logic here is airtight, and it's based on a doctrinal truth that we must get firmly into our minds and our hearts. John says, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What is the Holy Spirit of God declaring through John's pen? What doctrinal truth? It is this. All genuine Christians will continue in true faith. They will endure. They will persevere. Anyone who is real, the real deal, will, not perfectly, but consistently, be walking in a Jesus direction. Those John is calling out weren't doing that. John is saying, church family, listen, if they had been real, they would have remained. If they had truly given their whole self to Jesus in faith, if they were of us, they would continue to be here. By leaving, they proved they never really had Jesus at all. And that is what the Holy Spirit says here. Now let's chew on that for a little bit, because it's huge. Perseverance authenticates, it validates, it proves genuine saving faith. Failure to persevere exposes a faith that was never real. It was never a genuine faith. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now is John saying perseverance saves? No. No, no, never. Only personal faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus saves anyone. But perseverance does become yet another evidence of genuine faith because on our own, in our own strength and power, none of us would ever persevere. The power of Satan and his spiritual forces in the unseen realm and the sin nature that still resides within us, within each of us, though our faith is in Jesus, man, that would spell our doom if perseverance was up to us. The only way any true Christian perseveres to the end until they see Jesus face to face is because God has promised to preserve those who have genuinely placed their faith in His Son. We can never talk about the perseverance of the believer without at the same time declaring the preserving work of God in every true believer's life. Those who persevere have been preserved. On your note page, under God preserves the real, we say this, all true Christians, all who are real, persevere in faith. They continue, as John would say, because of God's eternal promise and action to save completely and finally all who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now there are many verses that speak to this perseverance and this preserving role that God has in the Christian's life. Some of these verses are very well known. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or in John chapter 17 verse 12, Jesus says this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who is the son of destruction? Well, none other than Judas. That's right. Judas is the son of destruction. He never knew Jesus in a saving way. So Jesus could not have lost him. But all those who know Jesus, he has kept. Jude verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's talking about the preserving work of God in the Christian's life. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God finishes what he starts. God makes incredible promises to us. Hundreds and hundreds of them in Scripture. And as Christians, we live in these promises and we have joy because of them. But he makes this absolutely essential promise. To preserve us. That we sometimes fail to remember. Or maybe never even knew that he'd made. God says, when you are truly mine by faith in my son, I will preserve you for myself to the end. You will persevere. Now think about that. This truth properly understood is a tremendous comfort to any Christian who has unspoken or maybe even spoken fears about their assurance of salvation, their security in Jesus. Am I real? Well, you are real if you persevere. Because you could never persevere if God was not in your life preserving you every single day. And he's preserving you because you have put your faith in his son in a genuine saving way. His persevering activity in our lives is dynamic and it involves a host of, of means by which he keeps us secure. The means he uses come primarily through the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed unto salvation, according to Ephesians 1.13. The Spirit teaches us and convicts us and, and sanctifies us. God uses his word as well to preserve us, the church to help us and his people to encourage us. God disciplines us and humbles us. He brings tests. He permits trials, healing and pain, joy and sorrow. As we sang a bit earlier this, in the morning from the hymn Amazing Grace, Through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. What John Newton was saying without saying it was that God graciously preserves what he bought with the blood of his son. We reach heaven. We reach home. 
because God graciously preserves us. Our salvation is utterly of God from beginning to end. We are saved by God's grace. We stay saved by God's grace. Salvation is completely of God. It is because of God's promise to preserve us that John can say so confidently that these folks who have left the church, who left the faith, never had the faith. They did not persevere. And the only reason that that is the case is because God did not preserve them. And if God did not preserve them, then they were never truly saved in the first place. Look one more time at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They went out so that it would become plain to us that they don't know Jesus yet. God preserves all who are truly His. Now, what does that look like? Well, brothers and sisters, it looks an awful lot like a Christian who keeps walking directionally toward the person of Jesus and the will of God their whole life long. The walking doesn't save us, and the ability to walk isn't from us, but the enduring lifelong walk in a Jesus direction is a proof that we are preserved by God. The real persevere, but the real are being preserved. If I stop walking, or worse, if I turn and walk in the other direction and continue on that path away from Jesus without God rather quickly intervening in a preserving way, then I'm not saved because I'm not persevering. And if I'm not persevering, it's because God isn't preserving. I'm not in Jesus yet. Just a few verses past verse 19, at verse 24, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. How can John say that so confidently? Are these some kind of first century super Christians? Of course not. They're men and women and young people just like you and me. His confidence for their abiding or continuing or persevering John's confidence is in God's commitment to keep us abiding. Here's another passage, Hebrews 13:14, or 3:14 rather. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. All who are truly living in the grace of God through faith in Jesus are kept in that grace by the power of God. That means we will never ultimately and finally give up on Jesus. We will never finally and ultimately deny him. No genuine Christian will do that. They cannot do that. And God gets all the glory because our salvation is all of him. It is not of us. God preserves us and we persevere because of that. 
As we directionally walk in faith and remain there, we see in the general course of our life a direction that could not possibly come from our sinful selves. It can only come from God. There is an enduring love for Jesus, a desire to please Him, obey Him, love Him more and more. Will there be seasons of dryness and possibly times of confusion and wandering? Of course, there will be, because we still have a sin nature. But we will not go that direction for very long, because God won't let us. This enduring, this perseverance, despite the ups and downs and twists and turns of the journey, reassures us that we are saved by the power of the preserving work of God. So when John says to this church family that some among them left because they were never truly saved, he's also saying to those who remain, your remaining, your abiding, your continuing, your refusal to deny or distort or detract from Jesus, why that shows that you are truly a possession, in possession of a salvation that comes totally from God. You are real. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for the preserving work that you are doing in our lives. Thank you that we will persevere to the end, not because of anything we do, but because of everything you have done and are doing and will do. I pray that today if there be some in our church family who are here right now who, who are just unsettled about whether they will make it to the end. The question really isn't that. It is, do I love Jesus with my, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Those who do that are going to be preserved. And they will persevere. May we all have that assurance. May it make us bold. And for those who might be here today who don't know Jesus yet, may today be the day and now be the time. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen and amen. Real security. Oh, fellow Christian, be absolutely secure in your salvation, not because of you, but because your faith is in Jesus alone, who has changed the direction of your life forever. Your first love is no longer self or this world, but Jesus and his kingdom. By God's grace and his power, you keep walking in a Jesus direction until you die or he returns to take you to be with him. If you do, you need never doubt that you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. You are real.